Thank you, Brother Darren. I'm happy to be here and want to tell you that I have grappled, as he's indicated, with this problem or this question a long, long time. Uh, I, my first Sunday after birth on this earth, I was in Fairview Baptist Church, a little place out of Lufkin, Texas, about eight miles out in the country. And I was reared up in church and missed very, very few Sundays uh, from that day, really, until this day. And all along the trail, since I was in a Baptist church, I've heard it said, we Baptists are the people who are uh, like the church in Jerusalem. We can trace our lineage all the way back there to the church in Jerusalem. We know we've been here, and this is why we baptize people who come into our church. There's a whole lot of things of that sort were assumed. I heard that growing up. I reached a point in my life where I said, tell me, somebody tell me where we were in the 10th century. What was our name? Where were we in the 5th century? And what country in this world were we? Who are we? Who, how, how do we substantiate these lofty claims that we are the same kind of church that Jesus Christ established in Jerusalem, Israel, which is the first church that ever existed on this planet? Nobody seemed to know very much about it. I heard two, three seminars that were pretty shallow, mainly based on the Trail of Blood, which I think is an excellent little work, but it's very small work and doesn't give you much detail and very many real serious dates that are substantiated. So I says to myself, I have to give some proof to this. If I have to see for me if we really are in that lineage of first century New, Christ, New Testament churches, or we're not. So I was biting off about more than I could chew in that it takes lots of study, lots of time in reading, lots of time in libraries, lots of time searching for, uh, for reference material and for information that can either make or break the case. And I put that information into a book. Most of you who are here know about the book. And as Brother Darren said, it's there and it's available. I call it a history of churches. I didn't call it church history because you're going to hear the definition of church in a moment. Now, I say it's a church history. leaves a little too much to the imagination. So it's a history of churches, plural. And the byline here is the survival of New Testament Christianity against overwhelming odds. And in this book, I made it a point to reference lots of things. So there are several hundred references in the book that would take you to many of the sources that I've used. And you have to know that what we're going to do here tonight is just a, a brief look. I cannot tell you even everything that's in the book, and certainly in eight sessions, and we're looking at eight 55-minute sessions between now and Sunday afternoon, I cannot, I cannot deal very deeply with the subject, but I, I would say if you're like I was back there before I launched into this effort, I'm going to tell you probably more than you know and much as you can handle right now. It's an ongoing process of continuing to learn. So this book, as I state in your book, by the way, you should have a handbook like this. If you do not, just please raise your hand or reach up and go back there and get one because we have plenty for all of you. Uh, I, I state the purpose of a history of churches. Why I wrote the book, why we're having this seminar that we are here tonight. It was written to help those who need a simple working knowledge of their heritage since the end of the New Testament. You ought to know that the end of the New Testament is about 
about 2,000 years ago. Maybe not exactly quite 2,000 just yet, but we're getting close to 2,000 years ago when it ended. And so a lot of things have gone on in the name of God, in the name of churches, in the name of Christianity during those years. So this is just simply to give us a working knowledge of who we are and of our heritage. The main goal of this book is to show that brand of Christianity presented in the New Testament has continuously existed from that time that Jesus established that one in Jerusalem till today. There's been a continuous line. They didn't always go by the same name. They went by the same doctrine. And not everybody had all the doctrine together harnessed up. We're going to see that as we move forward. But there is a, there's a core of doctrine that is very identifiable that identifies our kind of people in the first century. We see it first in that church that was in Jerusalem, Israel, teaching Jesus Christ and the apostles. And then we can see that through the years in these different names, these different peoples who lived in these different areas. They embraced basically that same core of information, which I'm happy to say that I embrace today, and this church embraces, and there are still churches that embrace it. And I will make a prediction Though I'm not a prophet, I'm going to give you a prophecy of the Word of God. There will be churches embracing this form of doctrine until the day Jesus Christ comes back in person. Amen. He said that. He promised that. We'll read that in just a moment. So this book presents both a look at the continuous existence of New Testament churches down through these centuries, these almost 2,000 years. But it's also important that we look at those who didn't embrace these ideas. Maybe at the beginning, but then soon begin to depart from this brand of New Testament Christianity with these very identifiable earmarks. There, there are many who in the name of Christianity have drifted far, far, far from their roots. They're not anywhere close to those doctrinal positions that Jesus espoused and those apostles and was practiced in the first century and then to some degree in the other centuries but there at the same time were people who started out calling themselves real Bible Christians or first century Christians, but they got farther and farther and farther away. I mean, you're going to see that as we move through and, and completely departed from any real semblance other than perhaps by the name of the church of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look here at not only the survival of these New Testament type churches, we're going to look at these others that grew up and begin to persecute those and try to eradicate really those who stood for what Jesus stood for and what the apostles stood for. We have to identify our terms. We'll just say it is so important that you get proper definitions on things into your mind. So much rises or falls on definition. So we're looking at some serious definitions related to Christianity, one of which is church. This is a history of churches. We're going to see what a church is from a biblical standpoint. Jesus called it, in the Greek, you know that Jesus Christ uh, used the Greek, the Koine, or common man Greek, often, mostly. He could speak uh, Hebrew too, but he also uh, mainly spoke in the common man language, which is Koine Greek. And the word is ekklesia. And it literally means a called out assembly. Called out assembly. A New Testament church, just to put a little flesh on that, and this is, I think, a biblical definition, 
The New Testament church is a company of baptized believers voluntarily associated together for the maintenance of the ordinances and the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I have, even in the little reference book that you have, the, the note-taking book, and feel free, it's yours, you write on it, anything else you want to add that I'm going to say here that's not written in there. There are lots of references, not as many as in the master book I've written, but there are still lots of references. So you can see the origin of that particular definition, which certainly conforms to the word itself, the definition of the word, a called-out assembly. These baptized believers are in a covenant relationship in our day, it's especially important to emphasize that reality, a covenant relationship. There are so many today who name the name of Christ who say, I don't need to be a member of a church. I'm a member of a real church, the real true church, and I don't have to go to a building and meet with other believers to be a member of a church. In fact, this idea of a universal church, which we're going to see in greater detail as we move along, so that, uh, that people believe that if they are saved, they're automatically a member of, some, of the church in some sort of mystical sense that they're a member of the church. That kind of concept does not fit the idea that Jesus used and is used in the Bible at all. Ecclesia refers to a call-out assembly. A universal group could never assemble especially the ones in Europe and the ones in the United States on the Lord's Day. And if all the people in the planet today could get together every Sunday and worship God, as the Bible teaches we ought to do, we couldn't get those who are in the church in heaven, if it's a universal one, back down here to meet with us. So there's no, there's no way that a, a universal concept meets the, the very definition of assembly, Local church, one that you can see, one that you can be a part of, one you, and to be a member of a church means that you're in covenant relationship with it. You don't just attend it and say, well, I'm a member of that church by my presence. You actually join it. You become a part of it. You unite with it. You, you identify with that church, and there's a proper way to do that. I would also say, because this became a huge issue in, in the following years of, after the church in Jerusalem, particularly when the Roman Catholic Church got into existence and began to evangelize or to conquer nations and make those people Christians, they developed the concept that if, if you, for example, are in Spain, and Spain is a Catholic country, you're a Catholic by virtue of living and being a citizen of that nation, you automatically become a member of that church because they think in terms of a state church so that the state and the church are wed together in a source. So you become. That is not in the Bible definition. That kind of thinking just doesn't meet it at all. The definition of church means its history is a study of individual, specific, covenanted together, baptized believers in the name of the church it's a study of particular people coming together in a definite location, and one church could move to another location, but it'd still be the same group. It'd be a, be a church as such. And at all times throughout history, it is not the study of one giant entity with all Christians or a part of a political entity which calls itself Christian, which is what I've just been laboring, but I wanted to particularly labor some of these points to make sure 
that you understand the definition from the start and how it's going to be applied and how some people quit applying it that way and invented some imaginary things which are not biblical at all. Let's talk about the ramifications of a church. This definition, church, ecclesia. There are inescapable ramifications of this definition. You can't get around them. If this indeed is the true definition of church as set forth in the Bible, then here's one ramification. All true churches have their origin in Jesus Christ. You can't miss it. His church that he established and churches just like it, he's the head over each one of those churches. So every real church, a true church, has its origin in Jesus Christ and the church at Jerusalem. You've got to ask yourself, what does that mean about churches that started with the Reformation? Like the Lutheran Church and the Presbyterian Church and the Church of England and these other churches. What does it say about an Assembly of God Church or Church of Christ or something that had a, a man started 150 or 200 years ago, 1500 or maybe 1800 years too late? If it's true that the church is a called out Assembly of Baptized Believers, and it's Jesus Christ's church, and they have to be like him, then it has him as the origin. All true churches have their origin in Jesus Christ. Another ramification is that a true church is a visible entity. I'm in here. I look around, and I see members of Northwest Baptist Church. I'm not under any imaginary illusion that this building that we're sitting in is Northwest Baptist Church. This is the building where the Northwest Baptist Church meets. The people are the members, and there are a lot of you in this room here who have identified, and you're a member of this one church. It's pretty easy when you stay with the definition to see that sort of thing. And also, all true churches are located somewhere on earth. Uh, they're will be a future church when all the churches that are existing now and how through the centuries are brought together into one heading in the future, and that is predicted in Hebrews. There will be one church then, and we'll all those churches still be one local congregation. Just be big. Today, I will say again, all true churches are located somewhere on this earth. There, you, you can't have one that has no location. It just doesn't fit the definition. Also, all true churches are independent and self-government. That is so vital. That's the way it's been from the start. Each church is responsible to run its own affairs, take care of its own business. That doesn't mean it's to be isolationist. doesn't mean it shouldn't be involved with other churches and fellowship. But it does mean that when it comes to the calling of a pastor, the ratification of a budget, Deciding who can be a member and who cannot be. Insisting that people have to be saved first, then baptized later. Things of this sort are local church decisions. And each church is never to surrender its autonomy to a group of churches, like an ecclesiastical type gathering, a convention or a group of some sort, or to a state. Be it the state of Texas, the United States government, no church has any like any any authorization to ever quit being self-government. That's been a staunch position from the time Jesus established the one in Jerusalem. Furthermore, a person must be saved before he is eligible or she to become a member of a true church. 
People can come in, they can join by letter and say they're saved, but God's the one who keeps the final record on who's a member of every church, and God never adds anybody to the church who's not first born again. They may be a member on the role that the church has, but they're not a member of the role that God keeps. So just remember, this is a crucial point in Christianity. Salvation must come before church membership. You cannot be a legitimate member of any church until you're first a born-again believer. Number six in this list of ramifications is that a person must be baptized, immersed in water to become a member of a true church. Baptism is by immersion. The very picture is the picture of Christ who died, was buried, and raised again. Baptism is our statement, our acting, our pantomime saying that when Christ died, was buried, and raised, he did that for me. My hope of eternal life is not in who I am and how good I am. My hope for salvation is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's my Savior. Immersion says that. Sprinkling doesn't. Wedding with a cloth doesn't. Immersion does. And it is noteworthy that the word B-A-P-T-I-Z-E, which is a transliterated word from Greek, B-A-P-T-I-Z-O in Greek, means to cover fully with a fluid. And nobody has to wonder what the fluid is because Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River and it was full of water. Not something else. Water, water baptism. That's one of the reasons we call it water baptism. And Jesus himself gave us the example of how it should be done. He went down in the water, covered fully with it, came back out, not because he had just gotten saved, because he's given us an example. And that's how he became a member of his first church, by the way, the one in Jerusalem, Israel. Number seven on this list, a true church is made up of saved members in covenant relationships. It's a little bit redundant, but you know what I'm talking about. Covenant we've joined together, we've banded together. And number eight, true churches keep the ordinances in memorial of their relationship to Christ. Memorial relationship, not in order to obtain salvation. That's a big difference. People in that first church in Jerusalem, those people kept the Lord's Supper. And so did the sister churches that grew out of that church, like the one in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I delivered to you that which I also received. Paul talking to that church and their keeping of the Lord's Supper. It was a memorial, a reminder of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. But in a few years after that first church, enough drift away from first century Christianity had already occurred that people were thinking in terms of the Lord's Supper being a salvation event. That is, it would give or grant salvation to the person who ate the bread thinking that somehow that bread at the Lord's Supper would turn into the actual body and that wine in the Lord's Supper would turn into the actual blood of Jesus Christ. It would be ingested and somehow because you would eat his body and drink his blood, not in a figurative sense, but they're thinking in a real literal sense that you then become a member of, the, that's how Christ gets in you the hope of glory. In other words, that's how you get saved. That was not at all in the first thinking of the first church in Jerusalem, Israel. Let's look at some of the core beliefs. The core beliefs. These are sort of looking, as I've already said, at, at some observations, but the core beliefs 
And there are 13 in this list, though they're not numbered as such. There are 13 core beliefs, and I do not want anybody listening to me to think these are the only ones. They believe a lot of other things. These are more foundational beliefs, more core beliefs, the basic stuff, the real basic stuff. So let's look through them because this is the template. This is the pattern by which we measure later churches. The one in Jerusalem, this is what they believed. There was a church soon on the scene called a church in Antioch. You want to say, was the church in Antioch a biblical church? The best way to measure it is by the church in Jerusalem. And then when the church in Corinth and the Galatian churches, several of them, the Philadelphian church, and these other churches came on the scene, the way to tell Measure them by the template. Do they fit this pattern that we see here in the first one that existed in those in that area of time? I will say to you all who are here in this room as well as you who are listening perhaps in some recording, that's still the way you measure a church. If you want to know what a church really is, measure where it stands on these doctrinal positions. And if it doesn't stand here, it's not the kind of Jesus established. It may call itself that. It may call itself Baptist, Pentecostal, whatever it may call itself. But just what you say you are doesn't make you that. I think a name is important. We'll deal with that in the seminar. But let me tell you, if the doctrinal positions are not compatible, you're not one of them. Nobody's one of them. So these doctrinal positions, Christ Jesus himself or Jesus Christ personally founded his church. He personally did it. In his mortal lifetime, now I say that, he didn't, he didn't start in Bethlehem and he didn't end on the cross. He was here before the foundation of the world and he's still here today, so he's everlasting. But this is mortal time, when he was born in Bethlehem until he gave up his life and then later arose and then finally ascended back into heaven 40 days later. I'm telling you that he founded his church. It didn't start two days or a month or a year or two after he left. While he was bodily here, he personally established his church. There is a common fallacy that that New Testament churches, including the one in Jerusalem, Israel, started on the day of Pentecost. It did not start on the day of Pentecost. It was already in existence. That church met on the day of Pentecost, and God crowned it with his glory, saying, this is the real deal here, just like he had the tabernacle and the temple before. But here, Jesus had already established his church. Also, a core belief of the church Jesus organized and originated is that he, Jesus Christ, is deity. That is, he is God, and he alone is the head of the church. No pastor is the head, no pope is the head, nobody that's a patriarch or in some other high position is the head of any of the Lord's churches except Jesus Christ. There are officers, he put officers in the church, pastors and deacons especially, and some others. But I'm telling you that the head of Northwest Baptist Church and every legitimate church is God, Jesus Christ. Also, a third core belief is that Jesus' church had two permanent officers, or offices, filled by officers. And one of them was pastors, and another was deacons. Those are what we call the permanent offices. And time has, time has passed. Uh, churches have, have uh, set up treasures and done other 
things, you know, for work's sake. But the two officers that God put in the church are pastors and deacons. Those are the ones. By the way, he didn't put priests in the church. None of those hierarchy things, those episcopate things that we'll talk about later. Also, the government of Jesus' church is congregational. Congregational means that everybody has a voice. Everybody has a vote. Things are not decided by a board of elders. And the board of elders do not say, we'll talk about it. We don't want it to happen. We'll never get it to the people. No, the church has the final say. They have elders, churches do, and they can have different officers. But the officers do not make the final decision for the church. The church votes on the budget. The church calls a pastor. If a church pastor needs to be terminated, the church terminates the pastor. That's the way that you see it in the Bible. Also, all churches are to be autonomous and self-government. As I say in a while ago, we were taking that little look. All churches to be autonomous, run their own affairs, and be self-governing, not under any political or ecclesiastical authority out there of some sort. And a whole lot are. you got the bishops in some of these churches, and they send a pastor to this church, and they do this and this. That is not scriptural. That is not biblical at all. Jesus' churches are to be entirely separate and independent of the state. Boy, oh boy. As you're going to see, that particular point has been really verified in the history of churches, especially in the third and fourth centuries, long through there. When the state and the church got married, it was trouble for everybody, everybody, all especially true Christians. God has certainly, when he established the church, made sure and clear, you do not get in bed with the state. You're separate you keep your business, you have influence on the state, they ought to listen to you, but you don't have a state running your affairs, and you don't run the affairs of the nation or the state. Also, Jesus' churches are to assemble on Sunday and keep the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the main ordinances, and really the third one is sort of implied in that they meet on the Lord's Day. Lord's Day, Lord's Supper, and baptism. These are Ordinances, their laws sort of kept like the ordinances of Houston or the ordinances of New Orleans. You've got these that are set in God's Word that churches are responsible to do. Baptize believers, remember the Lord through the broken body and shed blood and the wine and a, a cup or the broken bread or the Lord's Supper, the unleavened bread. These are, these are ordinances of the church and they're to keep them on the Lord's day. And the reason for that is Jesus rose on the first day of the week. That's when we remember his resurrection. You say, well, does that mean we're to meet on Sunday? I guarantee this, the very next Sunday after Jesus rose from the dead, these apostles were gathered together, in fact, with Thomas there, and he appeared in the middle of them. That's the next Sunday. And you just look at the history of churches, and you'll see the church has been meeting on Sunday. That's the day. You can meet on Wednesday night or on a Friday night like we're doing right in here, but that is no substitute ever for Sunday. There are churches even in the city that meet on Saturday, other days, say, well, you come on Saturday, you don't need to come on Sunday. Saturday's never a substitute for Sunday. Say, well, that's being pretty picky. Well, I tell you, Sunday's the day that testifies of the risen Savior. And that's the day of worship. That's the day churches have been assembling down through the centuries. 
Salvation is exclusively by grace through personal faith in Christ or Jesus Christ alone. That is such an amen passage. I think, wow, exclusively by grace through faith. What a huge issue, huge issue this has been. As we're going to walk through this material, you're going to see that more people shed their blood over salvation by grace with baptism following than any other single issue. I'm talking about gallons and gallons of blood of believers was shed because they insisted that you can't be born into a family and christened as a baby and automatically be a, a member of a Lord's church. You've you got to get saved first. You've got to know what, who Christ is. You've got to trust Him in your heart to be saved. And that doesn't happen until some point in your life where you're able to recognize those truths. And we've had our forefathers who said to people who wanted to join their churches, these New Testament churches, you've got to trust Christ. And then we'll baptize you and you'll be a member of this church. And many of those have said, I was baptized as a baby. I was baptized over here in the Spurious Church. I don't need to be baptized. And our people have stood the ground all the way through the centuries saying, no, you don't have a legitimate baptism until you first get saved. You can't get, sa you can't get baptized and then get saved, and that baptism count. Your baptism has to follow your salvation. It cannot precede it. Also, only saved person to be baptized and baptism by immersion. Again, major point. <laughs> we, we were even called dunkers at some points in history. I'm Literally, we, we've been called dunkers because of that very practice. Baptism has been a very defining feature for us and our kind of people all the way from back to that first church. Only saved people can be members of a church. I talked about that. Every believer is of equal worth to God, and there is to be no ecclesiastical hierarchy in the church. The theological position uh, is known as the priesthood of every believer, and it's taught, and we'll see it right in the Bible. Everybody that's born in the family of God has been made a priest unto God, and we don't have to go through auricular confession or some person here. You don't have to come to the Pastor Simpson or to some human and confess your sins. We have Jesus Christ as our high priest, and we go to him and go directly to God through our intercessory work of Jesus Christ. That's the priesthood of every believer. According to many of these Johnny-come-lately systems that have entered the scene, no, you don't do it that way. You're just a peon. You don't know. You've got to have a priest. You've got to have some hierarchy, some official in the church. You've got to tell him, let him tell God for you. That is not biblical. This is one of the earmarks of the church. Every believer is a priest. The priesthood of every believer. And then the scriptures and only the scriptures are inspired of God. None of the lately stuff, none of the, just the 27 books of the new and the 39 books of the old, those are the only inspired books there are. There are some other really good books. You ought to read them. They can help you. But you don't take them as the word of God. But you take all of the 66 books in the old and the new, you take them as they are indeed God's word, not just the word of Isaiah or Paul or some man. That is a doctrinal stronghold for us, and that's a mark of New Testament Christianity. Also, at number 13, the scriptures are the final rule of faith and practice for believers and the Lord's churches. The Bible is it's not just a good book from God, but when the Bible says frog, you jump. 
when the Bible says this is the way to live and treat your wife or your husband or your neighbors, this is the way you do it. This is every church is responsible for the Bible and doing things the Bible way and teaching the membership, the friend, the people in the church who've been saved and baptized. This is how you live. This is your conversation, your lifestyle as a believer. Keep these core beliefs of the church Jesus originated in your mind. Mark that page. You can flip back to it from time to time. But when we get to some of these other places, it'll be good for you to look back here and see what we really believed back then, what some of us have continued to believe, and see where these others have departed from these altogether. Key scriptures. Key scriptures. Matthew 16, 18. Most of us could quote this, probably both of these. I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I would say to all of us, this is a promise of perpetuity. Jesus said, my church is going to be here until I get back. It's going to stay around. It may be beaten up, beaten down, but it will survive. There will be churches of the kind I'm establishing right here, baby churches and grandkid churches and great-grandkid churches. There are going to be some of them somewhere on the planet until I get back here. That is one scripture that moved me when I was younger. That's a promise. If they were here, I should be able to identify them in the 5th century, in the 10th century. Listen to this one. It seems even clearer to me. Ephesians 3.21, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Did you hear throughout all ages? That's a statement saying they're going to, churches like this are going to be here the whole trip throughout all ages. That means in 2023. There's going to be some. There are some, by the way, and they'll still be. Prevailing influences at the inception of the first church. You need to understand these influences and, and what was bearing on these, these, church, these believers in that church that Jesus built. What an uphill struggle they faced. What against all are insurmountable odds. It seemed as they surely couldn't survive. This church is, this thing can't live. It won't make it. It will die off. It'll die off because too many people are against it. So here's some of the influences that these first church Christians, first century Christians faced. They faced Greek influence. The influence of renowned philosophers. Most of us in our, in our high school days heard about Socrates and Plato and Zenus and Epicurus and you know, these different Aristotle, these, these renowned Greek philosophers who had these very profound ideas about life and what constitutes life and how people ought to live. And I will tell you, in those days, these Greek philosophers had major influence on people. They still have major influence on people. You go into a psychiatry course or psychology direction in your school and you're going to encounter these guys. They'll be telling you what they believe, which is not biblical, but they will, you're going to have to face it. They're still influencing the human race today. These Christians, these early ones, faced these influences. Also, there were materialistic and sensuous Greek culture influences going on around them. It's called Hellenism. Hellenism, it was highly appealing to the flesh, and it permeated the Roman Empire. Hellenism came from Greek society. The Romans 
simply adopted many Greek ideas. They adopted the Greek pantheon of gods for one thing, just renamed them to some other names, but they were the same bunch. And they took the practices, particularly affluence, and K, K, you know, the uh, class system. You know, you have rich and poor, and you have those who rule and those who are ruled. Uh, they, they really went into this. So I could talk a long time about Hellenistic thinking, and but just know that Hellenistic thinking was not Bible-centered as such. And the, it was really prevailing on the people in that first and second century and all along for a while. Also, another Greek influence was this language that I mentioned earlier, Greek, Koine, Greek, K-O-I-N-E, as you can see in your notes. It was common throughout the entire Greek or, or uh, Roman Empire. I'm not saying everybody in the empire spoke it, but it was the trade language, and a whole lot of po- people spoke Koine Greek. It was the ordinary man's language. And the scriptures, of all things, the scriptures were brought into Koine Greek, which meant that all throughout the empire, where the scriptures went, people could hear it in their own language and receive the message of Christ. Uh, it, I might say in opposition to Koine, or common man's Greek, is classical Greek. Sometimes you read Greek and it's classical and it's high Greek. Well, that's not what everybody used. Everybody in the empire, just about everybody, was in, involved with ordinary Greek. They call it vulgar, V-U-L-G-R. It's not because it's bad or, like we say, vulgar talk, but because it's common talk, like graffiti. Just everybody could see it, nobody. As harsh as it was, the government of Rome meant peace throughout the empire, Roman Empire. And it was a big empire, all the way from the Persian Gulf on the east side, all the way to the British Isles, including Ireland on the west side, and all across North Africa, all the way up into the middle of Europe and some even higher. That's where the Rome, Roman people ruled. And it was this big, huge, massive, powerful influence. And you would say, how could a government that had its headquarters in the city of Rome in Italy, how could they control it? Brute force crosses. You cross us, we'll put you up there, and we'll put you up there where everybody around can see you. If they want to be next, let them come on, we'll put them up there right behind you. And the word got around. Nobody won't hang on a cross three or four days and die that kind of death. So Rome was powerful, and they acted with authority, and they put down rebellions, and they did it with vengeance, and they did it with no mercy. Also, there was a superior communication system in the Roman Empire, and it meant they could get the message from one end of the empire in relatively short period of time. So word, they had a good uh, postal system, I guess you'd say, or communication system, though they didn't have any electronics and things like we do. Still, they were able to get things around, and their government was structured so that they had various governors and officials throughout the whole of their empire that were deputized to keep the peace and to deputize to take care of getting messages around. Also, highly developed roads and a good courier system meant relatively safe travel. And I say relatively safe travel because there were bandits in those days. You know, we get out here on Interstate 10 and we might get shot because there are hot doggers out there with pistols now and drive up sides and shoot you. 
you got to realize in those days where they walked and mostly walked, they did have some horses and a few, a lot of mules. But I will assure you uh, that there were plenty of bandits out there, and they all they had to do, especially in that part of the world, was just vanish into the desert or into some cavernous area, and you couldn't hardly get them. No police around to call quickly. So it was dangerous to travel, really dangerous to travel. But the Romans had it pretty figured out, and they had a, a good courier system and good roads, and so Christianity and churches proliferated. I was really impressed on my earlier trips to Israel to, to walk on some Roman roads that are still being used. And I'm thinking, I wonder where Interstate 10 will be in 500 years or 1,000 years. But here, Roman roads that were built 2,000 years ago and still people using those very roads. So they had it down. They knew. And it was a really helpful thing to Christianity because it, in, it certainly em, empowered them to, to move quickly. There was also this thing um, of them keeping, the Romans allowing people to, the conquered people, and that's how they did it. They conquered, conquered, just took over, took over, took over. It was always a, a, a conquering role. Um, they allowed these people they conquered to keep their own religions and their own gods. Rome prided itself in what they call religio licita. That means religious liberty. In the, it's a Latin for religious liberty. The Romans said, hey, you can worship any god you want to. You can worship Jesus Christ if you want to. You can worship Zeus if you want to. You can worship the river or the sun or whoever. You just do it. What we require of you is you can worship your god, but you got to accept all the other gods. You got to uh, realize that the emperor is a god, and you got to worship the emperor. We'll talk more about it, but that flew in the face of Christianity big time. They didn't do it. There's also this uh, Jewish diaspora. Uh, um, there were Jewish colonies that existed in almost every population, major population center throughout the entire Roman Empire. So wherever there was a city like Rome, Jews set up shop there. I mean, they, they traveled around, they got kind of dispersed around, and they, so there were communities. So when you read through Acts, you know that Paul would go into a place like Troas or go into some other city, and he would go to the Jewish colony that was there, and he'd start preaching to them and tell them that Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of their Jewish uh, Old Testament. So, so that really helped when Christianity started to spread. There were already contacts out throughout the empire where there could these uh, missionaries, like Paul was a great missionary, really the first one, that really did the job of getting the message out. I need to talk to you about reasons for the spread of early Christianity. Why it went so fast? Because I'll Early Christianity was like a brush fire. It's like you get summer grass and weeds and maybe a few trees and they haven't had rain for a long time and everything's just hot and dry. Somebody sparks it over here and it just goes, especially when it gets a wind behind it. You know in California they get those winds coming and just burn off a whole uh, half of the state, it seems, or just large, large areas. Christianity was sort of the the brush fire of, of um that century, that first, second, third century. I mean, it just took off. It really took off. And there are some reasons. Here's some reasons why it went so quickly. One of them was the miraculous life of Jesus Christ. After all, he, Jesus Christ, was God with us. God with us. And he performed true miracles, not just superhuman acts. Some of these religious groups in the, in the Roman Empire, they all had gods, and some of their gods were supposedly come on earth and do certain things, usually stir up a sandstorm or 
make a storm on the Sea of Galilee or someplace, you know, just do something like that. And they thought, that's a big deal. Our God's down here doing it. Jesus didn't do it that way. He, you know what he went? He went to the Sea of Galilee and he was in a big storm and he just spoke and it settled right down. He went to a tomb where God had been dead four days and already stinking. He just called him out and he came out of there alive. He's not, he's not lying wonders. Jesus is doing the real McCoy. I mean, real McCoy. That word got around. Also, in the miraculous life of Jesus Christ, the biggest miracle was he rose from the dead. Boy, was there from the start an effort to hide that. Tell them somebody, the, the, the guards, guard the place. And when they got out, they said, tell them he escaped. <laughs> tell them all kinds of lies. But pretty quick the word got around that he really was alive. It especially got around whenever he showed himself alive to Peter and to John and to Thomas and to 500 at one time. And he just, I mean, you couldn't, they, they couldn't deny it. They couldn't deny that he really did raise from the dead, and nobody from the first man Adam till anywhere else had ever raised himself from the dead. Elijah raised somebody from the dead and some of those few, but nobody came out of the grave himself. That word spread. It got around. Also, they believed his message, the apostles did, and they were willing to export it wherever they could, regardless of the cost. I'm going to tell you that when Jesus first was crucified, they were petrified. They were hiding, Peter and all those men. But when he appeared, and they saw him, and they talked to him, they said, we'll do it. It doesn't matter what the cost is. And it cost most of them, if not all of them, their lives in a macabre way. But they were willing that's one of the things that caused them to be so energized. It's the thing that caused them to be so energized. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it energized them to the point to where they invested everything in the message of Jesus Christ. The whole, including their own lives and their risk, everything for it. Also, the apostolic witness is a reason why Christianity spread so rapidly in that first century and the following days. The apostles were eyewitnesses. They didn't think, we heard he's alive. Peter could say, I saw him. Thomas could say, he showed me his hand. I put my hand there. I saw him alive. They knew they were telling the truth. It was not a misunderstanding. It was not a hoax. It was not a ghost. It was Jesus Christ living, and they were so energized by that. And they were given the power of the Holy Ghost. Another thing that so energized them was the apostles, not everybody, but the apostles could also raise somebody from the dead and also do some other very miraculous things. They didn't just go like I would have to or some preacher today would have to and say, let me tell you the message of Jesus Christ and plead with and be as explicit as possible with. No, they could message the message of Christ to speak it and they could do a miracle that nobody could do, but somebody had God do it through them. They had that power. And believe me, that impact was phenomenal. I mean, it was enormous. Also, God gave them their messages, and in the receipt of Scripture, they were infallible. This John 16, verse 13, which I see so commonly misused, 
Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. And I hear preachers saying, well, that means that I'm a pastor and I've got the truth here and I've got all the truth. That's not what that's talking about at all. When the, he, Jesus is talking to his apostles and he says to those guys, when the Spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. And I will assure you, everything Matthew says, everything John says, everything Acts says, everything that 1 Corinthians says is all truth. It's not just what these guys made up. Amen. The Holy Spirit gave it to them and they got it right. I'm not saying that every day, every time they spoke, they got things right because they weren't writing Scripture every day. But when it came to the receiving of Scripture, they were infallible. And that really gave them torque. And it meant their message resonated with people. Also, another reason for the spread of early Christianity, this wildfire effect that I was talking about, is the opposition and persecution by Jewish leadership. Listen, the vile hatred of most Jewish leadership for Jesus Christ, his message, and those who followed him became a major factor in the rapid spread of Christianity because the Jewish leadership was set on silencing and eradicating the Christians. They wanted to shut them up. And they made life so hard on them that many of them were spread abroad. We'll see it in the life of Paul. It's coming right up here in just a minute. Uh, but that meant they couldn't just stay, all of them stay at home at Jerusalem and go to church there for they got to be old men and women and died off. God scuttled them and he used the Jewish to do it. I mean, they, they had to leave for their own safety. And then Saul of Tarsus came on the scene. You know about him. His name was Saul first and God renamed him to Paul. But Saul of Tarsus was a highly intellectual and powerful young Pharisee. And he was a Jewish leader according to Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. And he made his personal mission to destroy Christians. That's what he said he set out to do. I'm going to get rid of this thing called the way. I don't want to let this Jesus of Nazareth thing get going. I'm going to put an end to this thing. He made his personal mission and, and he wanted to do it as he thought uh, because he was a, a defender of truth. He was a Jew and he was defending Judaism from what he called Christianity as a threat. He saw it as a major threat. So we can't allow this. We've got to eradicate these, these Christians. So Paul then was converted and when he was, uh, when he got saved, uh, the same zeal and passion that he used against Christianity, he turned around by the grace of God and was used of God to spread the message and convince men that Jesus really is the Christ and that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. So Paul exported the gospel message and planted churches and strategic nerve centers throughout the whole empire. And I might say about those strategic nerve centers, he went to places, went to a lot of places, but he went to places like Rome itself. Antioch was a major city. He went to these places where they were headquarters because he could get the message there and then they would spread it, export it out from where they were. Then there were others, others that were in the business of it as well. And you can, you can see uh, on the, the screen that's in front of you other evangelism. Uh, Paul or Peter zealously exported the message of Christ. Uh, not just Paul, Peter did. God revealed to him that Christianity was not limited to the Jews, but it was to the Gentiles. And boy, that got hold to him, and he spread the message to Gentiles. Barnabas went to him as a missionary to Cyprus Island. Acts 15, verse 39. Thomas took the, the gospel message to India. Mark took the message to Egypt and to North Africa. That's how it got really going down there. Putin's and Claudia, who we'll revisit later in this study, exported the message to, to Britannia or Wales. 
planted churches over there. And it became a major, major force in getting the, the uh, gospel of Christ to the message of the church to, to the United States of America. And the main vehicle that seemed to uh, spread Christianity throughout the empire was Paul's success in Roman, when Roman guards. You know, he was, in, he was in, 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 incarcerated a number of times. And while he was in jail, he wasn't sitting there sucking his thumb saying, I shouldn't be here and this is not fair. He's talking to all the jailers. <laughs> He's got them. They can't leave him because they got to guard him, you know. <laughs> First they can do is hit him and they may have. I don't know. He's chained to them. And while he's got them, they think they got him. He's got them, and he's preaching Christ to them. He's telling them about Jesus Christ. And you know what happened? A bunch of them got saved. Amen. And they went home because they were in the military, got drafted into the service of the Caesar, you know, the Roman army. They'd come into Rome for a while, meet Paul. Then they'd be sent back to their home. And when they got back home, they started telling everybody at home, you guess what I learned? <laughs> guess who Jesus <laughs> I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ. People started getting saved. Christianity just spread. You know what I say? Hallelujah. Amen. The destruction of Jerusalem was a big factor. Destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 broke the back of Jewish resistance and Jewish control of Christianity. Jews were always a thorn inside of the Romans. The Romans finally got a belly full of it. And they sent an army down to Jerusalem and, and sacked the city. 70 A.D. Just a little bit later, they took the last ones off Masada. It's an awful story. But what it did, it broke the back of the Jews and their resistance. With the conversion of thousands of Gentiles, Christianity became less and less exclusively Jewish religion, and Gentile churches proliferated and praised God, and it's time for a break. So I'm going to ask you to just take about uh, five or ten minutes here, and we'll come right back in, and we'll get right back into the second session. There's been no, I will say, very few eras in the history.